So we've been in a series, we're in a series in James, the title Faith Works. You know, essentially the core message of James is faith without the outworking of faith, faith without works is nothing, it's dead, he says. So still this morning on the theme of faith and works, but not from James, this talk is entitled Everyone Everyone can play. Everyone can be allowed to play. Everyone should play. Everyone can be free, freed up to play. And I have a reading this morning from Acts chapter 8, the story of Philip, one of the apostles, and the Ethiopian. Are you ready? Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. It would have been the scroll of Isaiah, wouldn't it? The prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip said. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and a lamb before the shearer, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And some later manuscripts include verse 37, which isn't up there. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The Ethiopian was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And I imagine as he continued on his journey, he'd have picked up the scroll and he would have read on. And very quickly, just a few inches down on the scroll, 
he would have come to what we call chapter 54. And he would have read this. He would have read, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. And I think he would have really connected with that. Why? Well, because he too was barren. He'd been mutilated so that he could have a top job in the palace. He was a eunuch. He'd been castrated. And he reads Isaiah 54, verse 1, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more, it's a bit strange, isn't it? But because more are the women, are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And just a little lower down, he'd have read, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. He's gone, you know, I wonder what he made of that. You know, we have this really happy gospel story. But behind it, there's this backstory, this really sad backstory, one of impotence, rejection, disqualification, disappointment, frustration. You see, he's gone all the way from Addis Ababa to Jerusalem to worship. A long, hard journey. It's 4,000 kilometers. It would have taken him at least a month to travel to Jerusalem. And he has clearly a spiritual hunger. He's searching for something. There's something missing from his life. He went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Let's just remember the temple for a moment. Right in the middle of the temple, the most holy place, where is the Ark of the Covenant, representing the very presence of God. Nobody went there. It's behind a great big curtain, a massive. Remember, it would have been about the height of this room, a massive thick curtain, and nobody ever went there except the high priest just once a year went into the most holy place. And outside that was the holy place. And outside of that was the court of the priests. And outside that was the court of Israel, just for Jewish men. And outside that was the court of the women. And outside that was a six-foot wall. And outside that was the court of the Gentiles. That's where you and I would be. So the presence of God is somewhere in there. But we're out here outside this six-foot wall and we'd have read the signs on the wall that say, come in here and we'll kill you. And outside that are the temple precincts. And this Ethiopian's traveled 4,000 kilometers seeking something. He's looking, I believe, for the living God. He wants to encounter God. He's seeking. But in spite of his wealth, in spite of his position and his sincere and earnest seeking, when he finally arrives in Jerusalem to the temple, do you know what? He can't get in. He can't get even to the precincts of the temple. Why? Because of the law. Because nothing unclean, mutilated or deformed was allowed in precincts. The backstory is one of rejection, feelings of disqualification, being left out, of not being good enough, of not being 
allowed in, of not being allowed to play. We'll return to the backstory to our Ethiopian and the barren woman called to sing in a few moments. But for now, on the face of it, let's recognize this is a good news story. It's a gospel story. We see in here the power of the gospel to change lives. We have Philip, who is a gospel carrier. He would probably have rather have stayed in Samaria because we know he was having a wonderful time. The lame man walked and the dumb man talked and all the criminals gave up crying. But he'd promised the Holy Spirit that he'd go where the Spirit sent. And he felt he should go to Gaza. And the Spirit said, go. The Spirit said, go. The Spirit said, go. So he went. And he's not ashamed of the gospel. Like Paul writes in Romans 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. So, Philip gets to play. The Holy Spirit positions him center forward to encounter this important official from Africa. He gets to play. Everyone gets to play. And the church really shouldn't be like a football match where there's 22 people rushing around desperately in need of a rest, watched by 22,000 people who could really do with some exercise. We can all play. And I believe that we aspire to be a church where anyone can come and receive gospel ministry. And when the gospel of repentance and forgiveness and faith and new life in Jesus bears on your life, you change. You grow. Your attitude changes. Your life circumstances start to change because your life starts to be redeemed. And we don't aspire to be a church where you receive that ministry, that help, that encouragement from just a small number of special people, like priests in robes, but rather a whole community where we all have ministry. We all give ministry in different ways. Every member gospel ministry. You know, it used to be just a few people who got to play. They were called priests. And they have everyone else outside. But Jesus opened up the way for us all to come to God, to worship the Father, to come into the Holy of Holies. He gave us access. He made us priests. God is no longer hidden behind a great curtain. At the cost of his life, Jesus made a way for us to come. You remember, at the moment of Jesus' death, at the hour of sacrifice, we read, Jesus uttered a loud cry. He breathed his last. And what happened next? The curtain in the temple was torn in two from, little detail, top to bottom. 
Why, from top to bottom? So it would be absolutely clear that the action was coming from heaven, opening the way so that anyone can come. Whosoever will may come into direct access with the Father. And we read in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him, which is what we're doing this morning, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Who is Peter talking about? Who is he addressing this to? To you. To you, Christian. To you, Jesus follower. You qualify, you can serve Jesus in whatever role or position he calls you to. Everyone can play. And because we know from 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is like a body, we know it's made up of different parts and there are no redundant parts. Every part of the body, every part of the body has a role to play. So we say here, If you stay, you get to play. For, as we read in Ephesians 2, you are his handiwork, his workmanship, his masterwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for each of us to do. God has a role for you. And for many of us, for a start here, that actually means join a team. Might be the welcome team, hospitality team, kids team, set up, tech team, worship team. If you're feeling this is your church and you're not yet part of a team, well, can I encourage you? If you stay, you get to play. And the first way you can do that is join a team. Different people, different giftings, different callings, different teams. And if you would like to talk about joining a team, talk to one of the people in beautiful green t-shirts about the welcome team. How to get involved, how to join a team. But you know, ministry isn't just these logistics. It's family care, it's pastoral care, and it's gospel outreach. We aspire to be a church which has every member gospel ministry. Where in one way or another, like Philip, we are all gospel carriers. Ready to give an account for what we believe. Ready to give an account for the hope and the joy that is within us. In this account of the conversion of the Ethiopian official, We see three gospel carriers. We see Philip, obviously, and we see the Ethiopian who was. He's carrying the gospel in his hand. And then thirdly, we see the Ethiopian who became, holding the gospel in his heart. In his hand, he has the scroll of Isaiah. He's carrying the gospel, though he doesn't know it. And he reads of a man of sorrows, one led by a lamb to slaughter. That's a violent, vicious death. 
he reads of one like him, without descendants, one wounded for our transgressions, an offering for our sin, who will remember soon in taking communion. And he would have read in the next stanza, sing, O woman who cannot bear children, a woman the same as him who can't have children. Now, what was the significance of bearing children in these ancient cultures? What did it mean? It meant everything. The more children you had, well, the more workers on your farm and the more income you had. The number of children you have completely determined the fate of your family, its status in society, and its economic security. If when you got old, you didn't have any grown-up children, you starved to death. And if the tribe over the hill was having more children than your tribe, then they'd have a larger army, and they'd come and take you and make you their slaves and servants. So unless you have as many children as you possibly can, you're dooming your community economically, politically, militarily. But a woman who bore lots of children, well, she was a national hero. And there's a tendency to take good things and make them ultimate things, to make them an idol. Having lots of children was an idol. It was how you gained status and security. A woman back then who didn't have children would have felt worthless and was regarded as worthless. So we read in Genesis 30 of Rachel, the young wife of Jacob, crying out, give me children or I will die. I'm disqualified, I'm outside. To bear children was the tops. To bear children was the idol. Every culture, every culture has idols. And it says, whatever that idol might be, if you don't have this, you're third rate. You're nothing. You have no worth, no significance. Their idols, their values were collectivistic. The size of your family, the size of your clan or army. But in our culture, our idols are personal. They're individualistic. In our culture, your worth, your standing, is based on your personal assets, your position, your career, your home, your car, the labels in your clothes, your looks, your Facebook profile. Every culture is saying, now, if you don't have this thing, you're nothing. Some of you may have watched on Netflix, Working Mums, yeah? Nod, nod. It's hilarious. But it's all about status play. It's all about worrying what other people think. People get into so much grief and angst, worrying about what other people think. Other people, what other people think is a trap. It's a snare. It says so in the Bible. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man, worrying about what other people think of you, is a snare. 
It's a trap. And I love Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.3. He says, I care very little if you judge me. That's freedom. Many people build their sense of worth and identity on the shifting sand of what they think other people think about them. And it's so harmful, so destructive. Rachel cried out, give me children or I'll die. And if you build your worth on something and then you fail to get it, it's psychological and sociological death. Every culture, every culture tells you to build your identity, your worth, on something. And every culture is going to hurt you because it's cooperating with that part of you that wants you to gain your standing, your security, your significance by your own efforts. That part of you that wants to justify yourself to be your own saviour and Lord. It's a pride thing. And pride will, of course, as I hope you know, make fools of us all, if we allow it to. And it's difficult. It's difficult, isn't it, to resist. It's difficult to escape this, this sense of having to make it by the standards of our culture which is no longer about how many children you have, of course. But God says there is a way out. There is a way to emotional, psychological, and sociological freedom. And here it is. Do you know what it is? Here it is. Here's God's answer. This is what God says into this. He says, sing. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Sing. Does that make sense? Do you get it? Are you excited yet? Is it coming through? Well, well, it's radical. He's talking to someone who feels they've completely flopped by the standards of the culture that they live in. They failed. They're rejected. And he's saying... Sing! Rejoice! He's calling for an inner emotional freedom from shame, from a full sense of failure. He's calling for you and I to get ourselves free from those external cultural pressures. He's saying, I can give you a freedom from, those cultural, from that cultural oppression from other people's expectations. I can get you to sing without children or whatever it is your culture demands of you. How? Why? Well, the answer's here in Isaiah 54.1. Because more of the children, more are the children of the desolate woman than the woman who has many children. Huh? Well, it's a paradox, isn't it? It's a non-secateur. And it's meant to be. What it's saying is, the woman who has no children has more children than the woman who has lots of children. Have you got that? It doesn't make sense. 
but it does make sense when you realize what children represented. They represented value, worth, beauty, and honor. And God is saying there is a value and a worth, a beauty and an honor available apart from children. Or to put it more generally, the person who has little or none of the status symbols required by the world's culture can have more standing, more security than the person who has lots of status symbols by the world's values. Because God is saying there is a value and a worth a beauty and an honor available apart from whatever idols and assets we've been socialized into striving for. And what could possibly be the source? What could possibly be the basis for that? Well, here it is in verse 5, Isaiah 54, verse 5 For your maker is your husband. Whatever you are longing for, and don't possess, the answer is here. Your maker is your husband. And I know some of you, particularly some of you men sitting there, are thinking, what? <laughs> Perhaps you'll go home at lunchtime and think, say, Brian told me today that my maker is my husband. Hmm, right. Well, what does a husband do? Let's unpack this. What does a husband do traditionally? He gives security, he gives protection, he gives provision. He does the heavy lifting, he gives identity. Traditionally, the wife takes her husband's name. A husband is the one you are set apart for, that says, you're mine, and he's yours, always. Someone who loves unconditionally, someone who cherishes you, someone who delights in you, someone who shares his life with you and you share your life with him and you share your joys and your griefs and becomes one with you. Can you see it now? Please nod. <laughs> Can you see it now? Your maker is your husband and he's a husband who keeps all his promises. But every culture Every other religion is about trying, 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 like a treadmill. Trying hard to live up to certain standards, to meet the requirements of whatever the culture tells you is the thing you need, the idol. And if you really try hard, by the end of your life, you'll have a positive verdict and you'll go to nirvana, paradise. Try, try, try. The gospel says something completely different. Absolutely different. The gospel isn't about trying, trying. It's a standing. A legal standing. It's coming into something, not in the future, after all that trying, but now. And the perfect illustration for this is marriage. Because on the one hand, marriage is the most intense love relationship, but it's also a legal status. The moment before you take your marriage vows, 
Do you have it? Do you have just a little bit of it, of that legal standing? No, you don't have any of it. You don't have it at all. But the second you have taken your vows, do you have a little bit of it? No, you have it completely. It's not try, 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 it's you're my husband. This is what the gospel, this is what Christianity offers. Something no other religion has to offer. If you're joined to Jesus, if you're believing in him, trusting him as your Lord and Savior, seeking to follow him, the verdict is in. It's now. Now you are his joy. Now you are his treasure. You are his delight. Do you know no one else, no other faith, no other religion even begins to try to offer something like this. He's saying, don't even try to look to anything else. God is saying, what you need is me. I can be your value. And what greater value could you possibly have than to be delighted in by the maker of the universe? For him to be the lover who pours out his life for you. He says, look, he says, look at all these other things. Your family, your career, your home, your talents, your qualifications, your achievements, your assets. Yes, good things. But don't try and get your value, your significance, your standing from these things. You need to be free from them. You need to hold them lightly so you can enjoy them without being mastered by them, controlled by them. You need to be free from them. You need to hold them lightly. And how will you find that freedom? How will you be free to play? Only when your heart rests in me, God says. Yes? Well, got a loose end to tie up. The African. Remember the African? Disqualified, rejected. He leaves Jerusalem. He turns back and he reads about a sacrificial lamb and a barren woman. And he knows what it is to be childless in a culture where to have family and descendants was everything. And gospel carrier Philip led by the Holy Spirit, explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he gets it. And he says, what, what is this stopping me from coming in? What is this stopping me from being baptized? And Philip just kind of confirms, do you believe? He says, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he says, come on. And he baptizes him. There's water at the side of the road. He's baptized, symbolizing the death of the old person he was. And rising up out of the water, symbolizing the new life that he would be with the gospel in his life. And he returns to Ethiopia, carrying the gospel in his heart. Incidentally, Ethiopia is the only country in Africa that was not colonized by European powers, and the only place in Africa where European missionaries discovered there was already a Christian church. 
Why is this story here? Here in the Acts of the Apostles. Why was that recorded here? Well, because it happened. But also because it's a model. It's a metaphor of what can happen to you. If you take a firm hold of the gospel, that the one who was led like a lamb to slaughter, a man of sorrows, was given for you to reconcile you to God, to bring you home to him. The Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing, a gospel carrier, knowing that he's valued, honored, and loved by the maker of the universe. And so can you. In the same way as him, you have value, worth, beauty, and honor. More than you know. That's how God sees you and holds you. You're not disqualified. You're not inadequate. You're not on the outside. Do you ever feel that there's an in crowd and you're not in it? Well, that doesn't apply to you if you're loved and valued. You're qualified. You have a huge potential. Do you know, you have a potential beyond the limits of what you've been socialized into believing about your own capabilities. There were some scientists who did an experiment with some frogs. Don't worry, it's, this isn't the frog in the kettle again. Different experiment. They put these frogs in some tall glass jars and they put a lid on the top. And the frogs would jump, and the frogs would jump, and they'd hit their heads on the lids that were firmly secured on the top. Then after a month, the scientists removed the tops of the jars, so it was free for them to escape. But do you know what happened? They were perfectly capable of hopping out, but they'd been socialized into thinking that they couldn't, and so they didn't. It's time to reject the old script of what you can't possibly do, to get up and to jump out. Do you know, the Bible couldn't be plainer about this. We read to each and every one of us is given gifts and abilities for us to use in the service of Jesus. There's no unemployment here. And no one should come here just as a consumer. No one should come here just as a consumer, merely to get a weekly recharge of the batteries. To follow Jesus is to say, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I use the abilities he's given me? You know, if you're a Jesus follower, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are a priest. A priest of the Most High God, called not only to be served, but to serve. And like Philip, and like the Ethiopian, to be a gospel carrier. Every single Christian is unique. As unique as a snowflake, as unique as a fingerprint. And you have certain 
experiences and gifts and abilities which suggest that perhaps there are certain people out there that only you can touch, only you can reach. So don't think that in coming here, it's just to have your own spiritual needs met as a kind of consumer mentality and then go back out to conforming to the world's culture. If you think like that, you're missing the point. There's an adventure. There's an adventure out there. The will of the Holy Spirit is for you to play, to position you, to use the gifts he's given you, just as Philip was there for the Ethiopian. There are people out there with your name on them, with your name on them. Everyone can play, and everyone can be free, and freed up to play. Go and be a gospel carrier. The fields are white, ready for harvest. And don't hold back. Don't be afraid. Your maker is your husband. Thank you for listening.